Amen. Happy New Year. Uh, it's good to see all of you here today. Um, my name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Uh, the first Sunday of the year is always a great Sunday for us to kind of um, revisit um, our vision, why we're here, uh, what we believe God has sent us here to do, what we hope to accomplish uh, through the course of years of ministry in the city of Winter Haven, but in particularly uh, this next year in 2010. The other reason it's a really um, appropriate Sunday to do that is typically it is the Sunday that the church has celebrated Epiphany. So if you look in your uh, worship folder at the outline that I gave you, I asked the question, what is Epiphany and why has the church historically seen great value in celebrating it? Um, according to the church calendar, the way the church is you know, determined to tell the story of Jesus over the centuries, this if you've ever wondered, you know, that song that we all love to sing that nobody can remember the, all the words to, the 12 days of Christmas, where that idea of the 12 days of Christmas came from is the 12 days of Christmas is the, the amount of time between the celebration of the Nativity on December 25th, which is Christmas, and the celebration of Epiphany on January 6th. So there's 12 days, so we're in the middle of the, the Christmas season. Epiphany historically is the commemoration of the visit of the Magi to the Christ child in Bethlehem. Now, the church saw great significance in that event, um, so much so that they put it in the calendar and said we ought to celebrate this every year. And so we're trying to do that, but kind of half-heartedly. And so we're going to look today um, at some of the themes that kind of get played out in that. But, But I want you to see what what the church is trying to get us to, to, to look at. And it's just this. Uh, what's being revealed about Jesus in this event in Matthew 2, which we already looked at during the Advent season, is that he is not just a Jewish Messiah. He is king of the Jews. He is not just king of the Jews. He's king of the universe. And that he has one goal, and that is global domination. And so just as in Psalm 72, which we read for our call to worship a few minutes ago, it talked about the kings of Tarshish, and Seba coming and bowing down before the Jewish king, the Messiah, and presenting him with gifts, the church has seen the fulfillment of that psalm in the event where the the Magi from the east came, presenting gifts to the Christ child, symbolizing that the kings of the earth were coming and bowing down in homage before the true king of heaven and earth. That Jesus has one goal. And in Revelation 7, we see the picture of the last days when... when representatives from every tribe and tongue and nation and people on the earth will gather around his throne in heaven to worship him, he will not stop until his rightful rule is realized in every square inch of the universe and until every enemy is put in subjection to him and until every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he is Lord. That's what we celebrate on this day. So it's very appropriate that we would take the time to look at some of the the aspects of what we call our vision and to help us understand the spiritual practices that we'll have to put into place in the coming year to allow God to do that in us. We're going to do that by looking at this passage in Matthew 1. So if you have a worship folder with you, there's an insert in there. There's a passage of Scripture that's printed for you on that insert. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. We're going to start there. I don't think, I threatened that this was going to be the longest sermon in the history of the world, which is why they got me up here so early. Um, But I don't think we're going to get to Matthew 2. That might be homework for you, but we're going to start by looking at Matthew chapter 1, okay? Pray for me. This is a hard passage of Scripture to read, okay? So let's read together. It'll be on the screen behind me. It's printed for you there, and if you'd like to follow along, there are Bibles in the pews. For Matthew 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. And Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah the father of Jotham. And Jotham the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh the father of Amos. And Amos the father of Josiah. And Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abaud, and Abaud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Elihud, and Elihud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is God's word. Now, There are three things I want us to see this morning from this passage, and you may be thinking, man, if you can get three things from that, you're pretty good. (laughs) Believe me, there's a lot more there uh, that I can even get to this morning, and Jonathan kind of covered some of this on Christmas Eve for us, but I do want to look at three things, three titles that Matthew gives to to Jesus that really structure this whole genealogy, and then talk about how they help us understand our mission, the strategies that we've put into place to accomplish that mission, and the spiritual practices that we must figure out as a people in order to accomplish that mission. So Jesus is three things here. First, he's the son of David. You'll see that in verse 1. You'll see all of these in verse 1. Number two, he's the son of Abraham. And then thirdly, he's the Christ. So, again, Jesus is first the son of David, secondly the son of Abraham, and thirdly the Christ. And those three titles are going to be very helpful to us as we talk a little bit about our mission this morning. So, Let's just start right there, okay? Beginning, and, and all I'm going to do is, is I'm going to take those titles and I'm going to jump from them to kind of talk about some of the particulars of, of just, just kind of a state of the union, um, some of my thoughts. And so I'm going to be all over the place. Bear with me this morning. Let's get it done together, okay? Jesus is the son of David. Now, what is Matthew's theology? Why, why is it important to Matthew that Jesus be called the son of David? He's very interested in connecting Jesus with King David. For two reasons. First, you'll see there in verse 1, he calls him explicitly the son of David. But there's another technique that that Matthew's using here that's very obviously pointing us to Jesus as the the son of David. If you look in verse 17, we're told that the generations from Abraham to David were 14, and from David to the deportation to Babylon were 14, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ were 14. Now there's a problem. And the problem is, is that we know historically that that's, not, that that's not entirely true, that there were more than 14 generations between those events. So if that's the case, then Matthew must have a very specific, you know, unique thing he's trying to accomplish by grouping those events with the, the number 14 and 14 generations in between them. What's he doing? Most commentators 
think it's something like this. And this might sound like, you know, some, woo, you know, wacky, out-of-the-way thing, but I, I think there's some legitimacy to it. Most commentators will say it's a, it's a device that Matthew is using to, again, point to Jesus being the son of David. Um, in the, the Hebrew language, every letter in the Hebrew alphabet would, would be given a, a specific numerical value. So, for example, you see in Revelation where, where you know, John writes to the church and he, and he says the, the name or the number of the Antichrist is 666. It's, it's this device that they would use at this time called gematria, which would assign numerical values to certain numbers, and so you could kind of add those numbers up and come up with the answer to riddles, so to speak. So if you do that and if you apply it to the Hebrew spelling of David, remember Hebrew, in Hebrew there aren't vowels, so there's just consonants, and then the vowels are little markings that are kind of all over the place. But there are three letters in the, in the Hebrew name David, um, Dalit, Vav, Dalit. D, V, D, and then the, the vowels are that way. Dalit is the, let me get this right, is the fourth letter, of, or excuse me, is the sixth letter of the, um, is that right? No. It's the fourth letter of the alphabet. I have it wrong in my notes. Vav is the sixth letter of the alphabet, and Dalit again would be the fourth letter. So if you add the numbers together, guess what number they get? Fourteen. So no matter how you look at this structurally, it's very obvious that Matthew wants us to see Jesus identified with King David. Now, the reason for this is, is that the Jewish expectation at the time, the hope that the nation of Israel had, was that there was going to be a king that would come. And you see this in Psalm 72 that we read a little while ago, that a king would come and that he would be God's king and he would bring a kingdom. And this king would be the son of David. He would be one of David's sons. He would be from David's line. And he would come and he would be the king who would rule in righteousness and justice and bring peace to the earth and there would be prosperity. Did you see that when we read there? i got to find it from Psalm 72. Um, he would have dominion from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. Um, and all the kings of the world would fall down before him and there would be abundance of grain in the land. And on the tops of the mountains it would wave and the fruit would be like Lebanon and the people would blossom in the cities. Uh, in other words, this king would come and he would bring a kingdom and in that kingdom uh, there would be righteousness and justice and peace and things would finally be the way they've meant to be all along and he would come and he would bring the shalom of God. And this is what the people hoped for. And so what Matthew's trying to help us see is that in Jesus, the kingdom of God has broken into human history. He is the king who all of the Old Testament was looking forward to and he's come and he's brought a kingdom with him. It's hidden, but it's here. And what Matthew is going to teach us is that if we're willing to repent, we can enter the kingdom. It can come to us. We can begin to live in it right now. Now, here's what this means for us as a church. We have a mission. I mean, I mean you know, that's, that's the implication. We have a mission. In Matthew 6, Matthew says, you know, Jesus, quoting Jesus, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness above everything else. With all of your heart and all of your soul, seek the kingdom of God. And so we've said in our mission statement that we believe why God has sent us here is to do this, to make Jesus' invisible kingdom visible. Now let me translate that for you in, in kind of some of the phraseology that we use. We've said from the very beginning, we're, what are we, we're 15 or 16 months into this, from day one, we said we're here and we don't just want a great church. We want a great city. 
That's our goal as a great city. Uh, it's been our goal all along. And what's fascinating is to, to, to see what a different idea um, that is and, and how, much, how much people just misunderstand that. I remember one of the early days uh, before we were still looking for a worship space and we really thought, you know, it would be nice to be downtown. And so Jonathan and I went downtown one day and we're walking around and we came to the, the Main Street Winter Haven office. Are you familiar with this group that's kind of oversees a lot of the revitalization in downtown? And we started talking to one of the ladies there and she said, so what are you guys doing? Well, we're planting a church. Really? Really? Yeah. Well, where, where's your, your building going to be? Well, we don't really know. We're hoping we could kind of be down, downtown, you know, in this downtown area. She said, really? And this is the truth. Wow, well, I got to tell you, uh, I'm not 40 in that. Okay. Thank you. Why not? Well, because it's my job. This is what she said. It's my job to promote the economic and cultural you know, revitalization of downtown Winter Haven, and I don't see how a church could help with that. And we got to talking with her a little bit more. This is fascinating. What, what, and and what, what we really saw is her only experience of the church in the city was not a church who was living you know, in a city to make the city great. Her experience of churches were churches worked against the very goals that she was trying to achieve in her job. I mean, if you really think about it, there are two ways a church can relate to a city. A church can use a city for its own purposes, right? A church can use a city to become a great church. Or a church can bless the city. It can die to itself for the sake of having a great city. And, and this lady had only experienced the first and never the second. And it was just fascinating. She didn't want another church in downtown Put it this way, we, we can make the goal to have a great church or we can make the goal to have a great city. Maybe those two things can happen at the same time. I think it depends upon your, your definition of a great church. But I, but I think what we want to say is we want to say our goal is not just a great church but a great city. So our working theology around here is that the church is the instrument of the gospel and not the goal of the gospel. Does that make sense? The church is the instrument of something greater than itself. It's not... The goal. So here's the question. Is this church, okay, this, these buildings, that playground out there, the worship services we do, is this the goal or is it the instrument? Is it the end or is it a means to an end? And the answer the Bible gives is very clear. The church is not the goal of the gospel. It's the instrument of the gospel. It's the, it's the instrument of something greater. We live for something greater than ourselves. This church exists for something greater than itself. We want a great city, not just a great church. But I want to be quite, I just want to be honest with you and say there, there, we have to, there has to be an evaluation of the cost of all of that that I'm talking about. We're going to, here's what it's going to require. We're going to have to die to our personal preferences and our personal comfort to see this happen. There's a kingdom that has come and that kingdom requires our, our absolute allegiance and it requires that we die to our selfish preferences and our personal comforts. If we're going to multiply community groups, it's going to be hard, it's going to hurt, but it's something we've got to do. Can I get an amen from some of the community groups out there? Okay? Because some of y'all are going through that right now. If we're going to plant churches, you know, uh, we've already started having this conversation, we're going to plant a church one day. (gasps) Well, who's going to go? Well, I don't know. Some of you are. I'm not going. We're going to have to die 
to our selfish preferences and our, and our personal comforts. That's what's going to happen. And if that's true, then we need to know what the great enemy of this is going to be. If there's a mission, there's a great enemy that's cutting against that mission. And it's just this fact that we're being trained in our culture to think of ourselves as consu- excuse me, consumers, and it's changed our understanding of the church. Erwin McManus, who's a pastor in um, Los Angeles, he says it this way. He says, we think the church exists to serve us, but we are the church, and we are here to serve the world. You hear the difference? Uh, this mentality of consumerism, I came across a quote in a blog, and I forget the, the man's name who wrote it, so forgive me, but I, it was so great I wanted to include it. But he says, when we approach Christianity as consumers rather than seeing it as a comprehensive way of life, an interpretive set of beliefs and values, Christianity, listen to this, becomes just one more brand we consume along with Gap, Apple, and Starbucks to express identity. Listen to this phrase. The demotion of Jesus Christ from Lord to label means to live as a Christian no longer carries an expectation of obedience and good works. Approaching Christianity as a brand rather than a worldview explains why the majority of people who identify themselves as born-again Christians live no differently than other Americans. According to George Barna, this is my favorite. Most churchgoers have not adopted a biblical worldview. They've simply added a Jesus fish on the bumper sticker of their unregenerate consumer identities. I mean, that's harsh. But it's to the point. We can come to church as consumers who are looking for a certain kind of product. I have a friend, uh, and he and his wife were having a hard time um, agreeing on what church to go to, and so the advice they got from their counselor is make a list of the ten things that you're mo- you know that you want in a church, and you know rate the churches out. Whichever one gets the highest rating, that's the one you go to. And I think now that's very there's wisdom in that. It's very helpful, but it's also very dangerous because it trains us to think of the value of a church and what it does for me, and how it meets my needs and my expectations, and what it, and, and you know the product it puts out. And if I'm ever dissatisfied, then I'm just free to move on. This is what we're up, up, up against. Jim Brownson, uh, in a book on the kingdom of God and the church, he writes, glaringly absent in our understanding of the purpose, excuse me, let me start over. Glaringly absent is any understanding of a purpose for human life that extends beyond ourselves and the gratification of our own needs and desires. The problem is not that meeting needs is wrong. It's that when meeting needs moves to the center of our lives, the result is self, self-absorption and narcissism. What the gospel offers, by contrast, is the opportunity to be drawn into something larger than ourselves, into God's overflowing love that moves out in ever-widening circles, embracing the whole of creation. Now listen to this sentence. The gospel sees our humanity not in terms of needs to be met, but in terms of capacities and gifts to be offered in God's gracious service. That's good. We are created not to consume, but to know God. Not merely to meet our own needs, but to participate in God's life and mission. In the final analysis, the biblical understanding of salvation is that our lives become swept up into something larger and greater than ourselves, into God's purposes in the world. That's the goal. That's the goal. There's something bigger than this that we get to be a part of in the city of Winter Haven that we're aiming our lives at. There's a kingdom that is coming. There's a king who is establishing his reign and rule in our midst and in our city. And that means we have a mission and it's going to cut across our narcissism and our self-absorption. And so I need to warn you, and this is, this is the end of this point, but I just want to warn you, and this was fun thinking through how this might feel. Um, if, if, you know, if you're new to church or if you don't quite understand this or if this is kind of getting underneath your skin, here's how this might feel. Just a couple of things. It might feel 
like you're being ignored or not being not well taken care of. And the question I would ask is, how do you love a narcissist? By feeding their narcissism? I mean, it might at times feel like the pastors are lazy uh, or that they are not doing their jobs, especially if you've been in church for a long time. I mean, Terry, Terry, you know, knows we only work one day a week as it is. Sundays, right? If that. Sometimes not even that. You know, but it might feel like pastors are lazy or they're not doing their jobs, especially if you've been in church for a long time, because there's this expectation of pastoral care. I just want to say, I want to throw this out. The busier the pastors are and the more involved and the more central we are, it's a sign that we are failing at our job description. Because we've been given to the church to equip the saints for the works of ministry. It might feel like we don't really do that much. Uh, There aren't a lot of programs or ministries, you know. There's just not a flurry of activity. I want to say to you, our focus is not on creating a little subculture and filling up your already busy calendar with all kinds of church events. We want to train you to live missionally in the city and the world. That's our job. Hear me. We don't want to take fathers away from their children for the sake of quote-unquote ministry. We believe their ministry is first and foremost to their children. And we want to train them to be faithful. That's our job. See, it's going to feel different. It's going to feel different if we really go after a vision of a mission that God has given us in our city that extends way beyond the life of the church or the success of the church. There's a kingdom and a king that we serve. But secondly, I want you to see, and thank you for the amens, by the way. That's encouraging to a preacher up here. Secondly, I want you to see Jesus is not only the son of David, but he's the son of Abraham. In Matthew's mind, you see that in verse 1? In Matthew's mind, to understand who he is and what 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 he came to do, you have to understand the purpose of the covenant he made with David, that there would be a king who would come who would bring a kingdom. You have to also understand uh, the purpose for which God made covenant with Abraham. So way back in Genesis 12, right? God came to a man named Abraham and he promised him a number of things. He promised first to bless Abraham. You can look this up later, to make his name great. He promised secondly to give him a son. He promised that through that son to make his descendants as numerous as the sand of the seashore. He promised to give them a land in which they could live as his people, to bless them and to prosper them in that land. But he did all of this so that they might be, or that he might use them to be the instrument in bringing his salvation to the rest of the world. That was the goal of God in, in, in taking Abraham into covenant with himself. The kingdom, in other words, the kingdom of God, Jesus, the son of David, comes through Jesus, the son of Abraham. It comes through a people. It puts on tangible expression through the corporate life of the followers of Jesus. He's the son of Abraham, not just the son of David, the son of Abraham. And if you think about what Jesus did in his earthly ministry, he came preaching the kingdom and displaying its power through miracles, but he also worked to create a little community of the kingdom, his disciples who would carry through with the work in his absence. So, if, if, if Jesus being the son of David helps us understand our mission, then him being the son of Abraham will help us understand our strategy. And the strategy is just this. The only way God's invisible kingdom becomes visible is through a community of Jesus' disciples, the church. 
Know my heart when I say it doesn't happen by holding evangelistic crusades in the Orange Dome or through a radio ministry at four in the morning at a local radio station. The kingdom of God comes when the church acts like the church, when we share our possessions with one another, when we forgive one another and show compassion to one another, when we speak the truth and love to one another, when we rebuke and exhort but do it gently and without offense. In other words, when we live the vision of the New Testament for the church. That's how it happens. That's the strategy. And we have all kinds of opportunities. This building that God uh, graciously gives us through the generosity of our brothers and sisters in the faith. It's a great opportunity for us to have a common place to gather around. The community group multiplication that's happening. Pray because community groups are beginning to get a vision for multiplying and growing so we can invite more and more people into the oneness and the reality of being a community of people who, are, who care for one another and love one another and live life together. I mean, we're dreaming about all kinds of things. There's a lady in our church, Carrie Katie, who's dreaming, and we're going to do it this spring. We're going to take a piece of that land over there, and we're going to plant a community garden, a place where we can just come and be together and, and live life and go through the rhythms of the ins and outs of what life is together. Now, let me clarify. When I talk about what it means to be the church and to come together as one people, I'm not, I'm not encouraging you know, any sense of building a commune and women growing their hair out to their waist and children wearing knickers and bonnets, Right? And that sort of thing, put that out of your mind. But what I am talking about is something like this. Tim Chester, on his blog this past month at some point, he wrote this. He says, the church is not a building you enter, nor is it a meeting you attend. It is not what you do on Sunday. To be a Christian is to be a part of God's people and to express that in your life through belonging to a local congregation or a local Christian community. He goes on to describe it and says two things. He says that that means that we belong to one another. He says, if if a car belongs to me, then I'm responsible for it, and I decide how it should be used. If a person belongs to me, then I'm responsible for them, and I'm involved in their life and their decisions. But then secondly, and here's what I really want to get at, he says it means we're a family. And here's what he says. He says, families, just listen to this, families eat together, they play together, cry together, laugh together, raise children together, provide for one another. Families argue and fight, but they do not stop being families And they don't join other families because they have a different taste in music or reading. With a family, you can take off your shoes and put your feet on the sofa. They provide identity and a place of belonging. And then he goes on to say, he says, family is one of the most common New Testament images for church. So he says, reread the paragraph above, substituting the word church for family. So churches eat together. Amen. Play together. Cry together. Churches laugh together. Churches raise children together. They provide for one another. Churches argue and fight but they do not stop being churches and they don't join other churches because they have different tastes in music or reading. With a chur- in a church that's really a church, you can take off your shoes and put your feet on the, on the sofa. I mean, you see what he's calling us to? We're a family. I mean, that's what it means to be a church. And I just got to thinking about that. I thought, you know, that's, that's really great. And I think, as I think about what that would look like, I think it means first that there's a wholehearted commitment to one another, that I commit to you and you commit to me and we say we're going to be in this together for the long run no matter what that we give one another access to our lives and to our hearts and to, their, to our dreams and to our disappointments and, and that we balance somehow in that compassion and truth. Now, coming to a close of this point, I want to challenge some assumptions about what that means then. And again, I'm just thinking out loud. This is fun. I'm just, you know, this is kind of like throw-up session all over you of all of my thinking about these things. But I want to challenge some assumptions. And the first assumption is that proficiency does not equal success. 
Proficiency is not our goal. Okay? Effectiveness is not necessarily our goal. I want to say we can be sloppy and learn to be patient with one another, and that will be the most beautiful thing people have ever seen. I mean, the, the state of the children's ministry rooms, uh, I, I can't even walk. I haven't walked in that building for two weeks because I'm so frustrated by that. Um, you know, the PowerPoint slide will come up and there'll be something wrong like the time when, when I was doing How Great Is Our God and it was supposed to be Sing With Me and actually it said Sin With Me. Brilliant, right? Just a little tad difference between those two things. You know, or, or I remember the first time I went to church in Lakeland and there were all these kids like we have and they're just noisy and they're all over the place and, and they're hanging all over everything and there's a tendency to just say, oh, oh shh, be quiet. You know, we have people, we have people who've already told us they can't come to this church because there's just too many kids. And it's just too rambunctious. Um, and I just want to say, you know, proficiency's not the goal. Um, the PowerPoint slides might not be right. There, it might be, you know, the noise of the kids might be profound. We welcome all of that and we want to say we can be sloppy and we can learn to be patient with one another and that will be beautiful. More beautiful than if we did everything right. If every, T was crossed and every I was dotted and, and there was just complete, you know. So proficiency is not the goal, but thank the Lord, neither is coolness because coolness doesn't equate success either. And that's, a good, that's good news considering the guys you have as your pastors, right? And it's not our goal, <laughs> nor, nor should it ever be. So what is the goal? <laughs> if proficiency is not the goal... And if coolness is not the goal, then what is the goal? And the goal is there's this place in John's gospel where the crowds come to Jesus. And here's their question. They ask him, what must we do to be doing the works of God or to be doing the works that God requires? And I could, I mean, it would be great just to poll you and, and, and see how you would answer that question. What must I do to be doing the works that God requires? Now, Jesus' answer is so powerful to me because of what he, what he doesn't say. But here's what he does say. He says the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. That's the work. That's the goal. Not, I mean, proficient, we want to be, we want to do excellently everything we do, but the goal is not excellence and proficiency. The goal is not coolness and cultural sensitivity. Or it, the, the goal is that we would be a people who are aiming at believing more and more deeply in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the goal. So there's a gospel dynamic at work, and the gospel dynamic at work is this. Jesus did not come to, to, for the healthy. He came for the sick. Jesus is not a savior of put-together people. He's a savior of sinners. And so if he's a savior of sinners, if Jesus died for sinners, if that's the truth of the gospel, then here's what we need to understand. We come to a greater faith in him in our sin not in our successes. We will come to a greater faith in him in our weakness when we feel weak and overwhelmed and not in our strength. And that's a hard thing. It's a hard thing. I am the least likely candidate to be a church planner and be standing up here. When we, I don't, I've told you this story. When we went to the assessment center, the first thing they did at this assessment center thing they did is they rated the personality types that make great church planners, 10 being the best, 1 being the least. Five minutes into the thing, they put my personality type up there and I'm a 2 I turn to Ashley, this is not good. <laughs> what are we doing here? And what I've had, I mean, it, so I've had to change because in my flesh, I would love, I would love to make a good impression on you and for you to think I'm just the most wonderful thing in the world. 
But what God, I knew what God was sending me into. He was sending me into something that I was going to fail miserably at in some ways. It was going to be hard. That was going to show my weakness. But it was going to be an opportunity for me in my sin and my weakness to point people beyond me to Jesus who saves sinners. And I knew that was the gift. To go headlong into something I knew was going to be hard and that I knew would expose me to be weak. But knowing that when I get exposed to be weak, it's an opportunity for me to point people to the one who saves weak people. You see that? I mean, that's the goal. We're one-year-old. We're going to act like a one-year-old. It's going to be sloppy. It's going to be messy. We're going to work on all of those things. But as we do, let's rejoice in the fact that Jesus loves people like us. And that's what it means to be that community. So, thirdly then, he's the son of Abraham. Excuse me, he's the son of David and the son of Abraham. But thirdly, let's try to wrap this up. If his mission is to make Jesus' invisible kingdom visible... And if the means by which we accomplish that mission is to become the church, his disciples, there's one more component, then what is the spiritual practice that we must put in place? What's required of us? And that's exactly what we see Matthew pointing us toward. Because you see here, he refers to Jesus as the son of David and the son of Abraham. And then thirdly, as the Christ. Now that word Christ is a Greek equivalent of a Hebrew word that means anointed one. It it refers to Messiah. Now here's what I want you to see, okay? Matthew's goal was that his readers would embrace Jesus, that they would believe, a la John 6. But he understood that there was an obstacle to this faith that that they would come to in Jesus, that his readers were blinded, in some sense, to the truth of who Jesus was and why he came by their own cultural, philosophical, political, and religious assumptions. He knew he had to overcome these assumptions to really get people to Jesus. And so the way he did this was to take his readers back to the Old Testament and show how Jesus came fulfilling the Old Testament expectation. I mean, this is what we've been seeing over and over again, right? Six times in these first few chapters, Matthew Matthew presents Jesus or, or an event or a scene in his life and says, thus it fulfilled, thus it fulfilled. He's, he's taking us out of our bondage to our cultural, philosophical, religious, you know, political assumptions, and he's bringing us to the real Jesus by, by bringing us back to the scriptures. So for example, the people of that day thought Messiah would be a, a king who would ride into Jerusalem and would conquer the Romans and, and set up the Jews as the premier nation in the world. And Matthew says, no, no, no. He was born in Bethlehem, not in Jerusalem. He was a Nazarene. He's going to be despised and rejected. He's deconstructing their assumptions by taking them to the scriptures. Now here, here's what this means for us. Uh, It means that the goal, the key to our success in our mission as a church is to be a people who are committed to bringing all of our lives in line with the truth of the gospel. And that's hard work because we're stuffed with all kinds of bad theology and wrong ideas. So what has to happen is we have to begin to be a people who can hear the gospel and repent. We have to hear God's voice cutting through all of our error and obey, not just one time, but day after day after day, year after year for the whole of our lives. It has to be the pattern of our lives. And the way God has chosen to speak to us as his people, the way we hear his voice is through the scriptures. And so we have to begin to be a people who read the scriptures. And this is why we've come up with our community Bible reading schedule, our community Bible reading program. Now, I realize there are many different ways, you know, in reading plans, and there's nothing special about this one, but what we're asking for you to do is to take one Old Testament chapter a day and one New Testament chapter a day and to read. If you look at your worship folder, you'll see the inside 
um, this little flap that becomes the tear-off for the visitors. But on the other side is the, com- the community Bible reading schedule for the week. What's fun? This is so great. Talk about sa- sinners in need of a Savior. It's all wrong. And that's my fault because I didn't communicate well. But we're not reading in Genesis and John on the three-year plan. We're actually reading in um, Judges and in Mark. So tomorrow we'll start Judges 2 and Mark 2. And we'll begin to read. Every week this is printed for you in this worship folder. We're going to start doing a monthly schedule rather than a weekly schedule. Uh, And then at the bottom you'll see a scripture memory verse. And we're going to do that instead of weekly. We're going to do it monthly. And we're going to say, you know, there are all kinds of ways that you could read the scriptures. But what if we read it together? What if we put into practice this, this idea of reading the Bible together as the very center of our life together? And I know it sounds silly. I know it sounds silly, but I believe this with all of my heart. If we could become a people who read the Bible consistently, devotionally, and with the intention of obeying what God says, you can't begin to imagine the work God would do in and through us. If you want one picture of that, look at that memory verse for this month. Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Listen to what the scripture says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but is the light is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of living water, whose leaf does not wither, who bears fruit, and all that he does, he prospers. That's the promise, that if we can begin to be a people who really give our lives to the discipline of reading and memorizing and meditating upon the Scripture, that we would become like a tree planted by streams of living water. So you see... I mean, that's what we're going after. I mean, that is our agenda for this year is to get all of us as a people to read the Bible. Doesn't that just sound silly and simple? You wouldn't believe how hard it is. And that's going to require two things. So in conclusion, let me just say these two things to you. If we're going to be a people, ultimately, if where all of this brings us is that we be a people who learn to to go to the Scriptures to find Jesus there, to find greater faith in Him, so that he can express that faith through deeds of love toward one another and in the city that we live, then it's going to require two things. And so these are your two applications. It's going to require a certain method, and it's going to require commitment or lots of practice. And so if you look at, if you look at the, um, the Scripture passage that I gave to you, um, you'll see that we did Matthew 1, 1 through 17. I also included Matthew 2, 1 through 12. It's the story of the, the visit of the Magi to Christ in Bethlehem. We don't have time to go into it, but, but what I intended to do and what I'm going to find time to do for you is if you turn over on the other side, you'll see as the application, I've listed a series of questions that follow the pattern of adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. This is the way we pray on a weekly basis in our worship services. It's also the way that we are hoping this year to train you to go to the scriptures and to use this as a way of not only reading, but beginning to pray and to journal the scriptures. Uh, we're going to be doing workshops about this. The first one is going to be a week from this coming Wednesday, which will somebody help me with the date of that? Today's the 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, the 13th. We'll have a vision dinner that night, and our whole vision dinner that night is going to be given to helping you learn how you can read the Scriptures and do CBR in a way that will profit you. So please come to that meeting. It will be advertised and posted on our website. But we need a method. We need a certain method of not just reading, but getting past the reading to really beginning to engage God 
and I think this would be a really helpful way for you to, to walk through uh, this, this process of adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. So that's there for you. You can try it. You can call me, email me. I think that would be just one helpful way for you to begin to do that. But then lastly, uh, what this will require of us is not only a method, but it will require commitment as well. Lots of practice. I'm reading the new, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's new book, Outliers, and he makes a statement in that book. He says, achievement is talent plus preparation or practice. He makes the case that to become great at anything takes 10,000 hours of practice, whether it's baseball or learning the piano or programming a computer. If you look at someone who's great at something, there's a pattern. Typically, you can point out there, there's a 10-year period of time uh, of, of a 1,000 hours of practice a year, which comes to 2.5 hours of practice a day. Uh, I'm going to date myself because I don't really know about this. They were before my time, but he, he, he even uses the illustration of the Beatles. Any Beatles fans? Woo-woo. Right? Okay. A few. But he, he tells the story of the Beatles. What people don't know about the Beatles is before the Beatles got really big, I think it was, I, I only know this not because I was even alive, but because I read it in a book, around 1964. But before 1964, from 1960 to 1962, what would happen is um, bands in Liverpool would often get, inv- get invited to come to Hamburg, Germany, to this certain nightclub to play there. And between 1960 and 1962, the Beatles traveled five times to Hamburg. And during those five trips, they played a combined 270 nights at five to eight hours per night. So before they hit it big in 1964, they literally had performed live together 1,200 times. Now, most bands in, in, in their whole career together don't play together that much. But Philip Norman, who wrote their biography, Shout!, He said this, he said, they were no good on stage when they went there, and they were very good when they came back. They weren't disciplined on stage at all before Hamburg, but when they came back from Hamburg, they sounded like nobody else. It was the making of them. I mean, even somebody as great as the Beatles, it's something that they did is greater than anybody else in the world. What made their greatness was their, their, their willingness to commit to getting good at it. Lots and lots of practice. So... I would just ask you, if, there's, if Jesus is the son of David, and that means that there's a mission, if he's the son of Abraham, and that means that the success in that mission will be dependent upon how well we can come together and be the, the body of Christ that is the physical, tangible representation of the kingdom to our city. If that reality of coming together is dependent upon our discipline of reading the scriptures to believe more and more deeply in the gospel of Jesus, if that's how those fall, then are you willing, are you willing to commit yourself to becoming great at this? And if so, we can help you. And that's, that, that excites me. What am I praying for me? What am I praying for you uh, in 2010? It sounds so silly. I'm praying that we would be a people who commit ourselves to becoming really, really good at reading the Scripture so that we can believe more and more deeply in Jesus, so that our city can come to know, not of this church called the Church of the Redeemer, but of a Savior who is the most beautiful person who ever lived and who can save the guiltiest sinner and who can change any family, any life, any culture, any institution, any city. That's our hope. So let's pray that together. Jesus, uh, would, you, would you come? Would your kingdom come? And would your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? That is our prayer. Thank you for my friends and their willingness to sit and listen to me talk for too long. Um, 
I thank you that you are a Savior of sinners, that, that Holy Spirit, you are before the throne of God and you take our prayers and our intercessions and you turn them into groanings and utterances that we don't even understand because in our weakness we don't even know how we ought to pray. We so desperately need you to come and do this work in us. It's something that lies beyond us. And so we ask that you would come, come Son of David, win us, uh, win us to the goal of seeing your kingdom come in our city and in our world. Come, Son of Abraham, make us a people committed to one another and to live out the reality of the kingdom in our lives together and in our city. And come, Jesus the Christ. Come make known to us the beauty of your death on our behalf and your life lived in obedience to the Father, that we might be righteous and holy in his sight, that we might be filled with the Spirit uh, for the good works that you prepared beforehand that we should walk in. Come and do these things that you might be glorified, we pray in your name. then he, he is not only um, this little baby that we just kind of coo over and, and delight in, he is the king of the universe. He's not only the king of the universe, he makes claim upon your life. And there's a mission that we must give ourselves to, but the good news is, is that if we give ourselves to that mission, I had a seminary professor who said it like this. He said, God loves to pour out his spirit and his blessing upon those who dare to align their life purpose with his. So the promise of the benediction is not just kind of there, it's there to those who have put their faith in Jesus who have staked everything on him and who are living to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If that is true of you, then you can rest assured that his provision goes with you as you go to do that. So receive the promise of the benediction then. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.